Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence. This is Doug Rodheis, Professor of Philosophy at Denver Seminary. Today we're going to address the subject of acedia. This is spelled A-C-E-D-I-A. We start with a quote from Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Acedia is the enemy of moral achievement and the agent of cultural bone rot. Isaiah exposed this in his day when he lamented, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Isaiah 59, verse 14. Secrecy and camouflage accompany its weakening, the conscience and vitiating the will. Acedia easily becomes a habit of the heart, a way of being that blends in with the moral mediocrity or even debauchery of the day. Vice it is, but a crafty one. Monks and nuns of the medieval age understood acedia, both in experience and in concept. They called it the noonday demon. Theologians such as Thomas Aquinas and John Cassian wrote on it in depth. Yet Christians today hardly mention it or even know its meaning. Before defining this obscure word, consider a story. John sits in his first philosophy course, since it is required of his college. He glances at his iPhone as the teacher begins to give the rationale for his course, Introduction to Philosophy. John expects the teacher to simply talk a bit about the syllabus and then dismiss class, as other professors do. This is what he is used to. What comes next is odd, The professor begins with a speech. Philosophy is not merely another subject. Historically, it is the love of wisdom. The good life is what philosophy is after. The Greeks called it eudaimonia, and the Jews called it shalom. Pursuing truth through reason about what matters most is the call of philosophy. Will you heed the call? Are you willing to make this the centerpiece of your short life? John looks up from his Facebook account, realizing that this teacher is different. He has spoken for several minutes and has said nothing about the syllabus. 
John worries that this class will not let out early, and he is right. With a focus and passion John has never seen in the classroom, the professor lectures on the laws of logic, the nature of knowledge, and the significance of philosophical questions. All this is fascinating to John, but it is nothing more than amusing. This is the most entertaining teacher yet. Perhaps he will need to work harder to pass the class in pursuit of his degree, which is sure to make him more money than this strange bird makes in a year or two. John also notices that the middle-aged and slightly ridiculous man has not buttoned his shirt properly and has coffee stains on it. John attends only enough lectures to pass the class, notes the idiosyncrasies of the teacher, skims the reading, spends most of class time online, and relies on Wikipedia entries instead of reading primary sources. He is rewarded with a B and never considers the subject again. He does, though, entertain his friends by recounting some of the teacher's quirks. He also remembers the teacher oddly offered to get together with students to talk about class material or anything else informally after class. But John did not respond. After all, he has his own friends. John suffers unknowingly from the mute and pandemic malady known as acedia, a malady that will often not reveal its name. Darkness is its domain. Silence is its seduction. Manifold are its miseries, even as it stupefies its prey. Acedia is the condition of failing to care about truth, goodness, and moral character. It saturates all attitudes and activities with cognitive sloth or laziness. Acedia is not limited to one action or even to one habit. It is not like murder or stealing, acts that are obviously wrong and which should be avoided in thought and deed. No, Acedia is more subtle, more cunning. A woman reads important novels, not cheap thrillers, for hours each day, but her ardor is motivated by Acedia. Another woman reads the same form of literature for the same amount of time and is not so afflicted. What could make the difference? Acedia is a particular form of laziness. If Jill is lazy, she does not exert the energy fitting for a particular task. That is, things are left undone that should be done because of a lack of motivation. We speak of people doing things half-heartedly or leaving tasks close enough for government work. Marcel Duchamp, 1887 to 1968, a modernist artist, illustrates Acedia. Duchamp, most famous for his use of ready-mades as art, such as fountain, which is an inverted urinal, was displayed in a non-jury show in 1917. Duchamp signed signed the urinal as R. Mutt. In a book of interviews from 1964, Duchamp repeatedly spoke of being bored by one thing or another, and that he worked at most two hours a day. The man toyed with art when not dismantling it. He had no drive to create beauty or reveal truth in his art. Nihilism had its way. However much he dumbfounded and dazzled the art world, Marcel Duchamp was mastered by Acedia. As Peter said of the false prophets of his day, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, for people are slaves to whatever masters them. 2 Peter 2, 19 Scripture condemns laziness, warns of its results, 
and commends diligence in doing goodness. Many of, of these anti-indolence texts are in the Proverbs, or are Proverbs, such as Ecclesiastes 10.18, Through laziness the rafters sag, because of idle hands the house leaks. Or Proverbs 18.9, One who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. In a longer proverb, King Solomon tells us to look to the ant for rebuke and exhortation. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overruler, uh, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Proverbs 6, 6-11 If the lowly ant is industrious in its realm, then how much more should God's image bearers get about the work of having dominion over the creation? Genesis one twenty six. Jesus, in the Apocalypse, or Book of Revelation, issues these flaming words against laziness. To the church of to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Revelation four, fourteen through 16 Jesus, whose ardor led him to the cross to please God and redeem God's people, does not tolerate tepid religion. He does not take up and go to the cross in order to make us comfortable in our conformity to custom and convenience. In a trenchant indictment of America's loss of virtue, William Bennett wrote of Asidia, Asidia, as understood by the saints of old, is not laziness about life's affairs, which is what we normally think sloth to be. Asidia is something else. Properly understood, it is an aversion to and a negation of spiritual things. Asidia reveals itself as an undue concern for external affairs and worldly things. Asidia is a spiritual torpor, an absence of zeal for divine things. Asidia's torpor does not grant rest, but rather causes world weariness and sorrow, since one's mind and muscle lack the morale to achieve the worthwhile. Whatever is the mantra of this malaise, it indicates a fatigue of the spirit, a deadening to life itself. There's no fire in the bones, no throb in the heart, no sparks in the brain, and no zeal for a better world. Whatever papers over the profound splashes in the shallow end of the pool, keeps the demanding books closed, if even considered, flees intellectual danger and adventure, and laughs off what ought to be thought upon. Some develop great skill in avoiding truth and virtue through sloth. They may even receive the applause of the culture makers and curriculum shapers. The CDO partners with a sensate culture to produce overstimulated spectators who are underachievers in matters of moment and of eternity. Sociologist Pitrium Sorokin warned of a sensate culture 
which defined the 20th century in the West. This culture is taken up with the material world of the senses, with the art as stimulation, with pleasurable body sensations, and with, as Schaefer, Francis Schaefer put it, personal peace and affluence. In this milieu, the immediate overwhelms the abstract, the visual eclipses the conceptual, and the stimulating replaces the contemplative. Religion, as an authoritative body of timeless truths and meaningful observation, is replaced by a subjectively exciting spirituality, which is devoid of theology and drenched in untutored emotions. For the sensate culture, special effects mean more than crisp argument. Celebrity performance trumps all the heroic performances of all the great intellects over all the centuries. Worse yet, many shriek with hyperventilated approval, panting after ever more spectacular sensations. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on The Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. A Theology Against and Beyond Acedia If Acedia has been exposed and put to rights, then what truth ought to motivate us not only to avoid it, but to cultivate conscientiousness? Creation Starting in Genesis is wise, since it is the book of beginnings. Genesis gives the divine character or charter for human beings in God's world. Man and woman bear their beings because they are made in the image and likeness of God, rather than emerging through an unguided and unintelligent process of biological evolution. Humans were designed and crafted by a personal creator who made them in his image and likeness in order to develop nature into culture to the praise of the one who made all things very good. This creation mandate, or cultural mandate, requires ingenuity, dedication, and intelligence. It cannot be done on the cheap. God summons his creatures to continue the work of creation using their God-given materials and according to their God-given nature. The notion of paradise without work is alien to the Bible, since humans were made for work that is rightly mixed with rest. The author of Psalm 8 rejoices in this charter of work and meaning. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe of the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, 
the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The image bearers of God were, as one flesh, to find their freedom in applying their energies and activities to fulfill God's purpose of subduing and cultivating the earth. There is no place for Asidia. Since the world beckoned the best from these newly minted beings, who had been crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8.5, by the king of the universe, a traditional Jewish blessing reads in part, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, king of the universe, who created everything for his glory. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, king of the universe, creator of man. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, king of the universe, creator of man, who fashioned man in his image after his own likeness and prepared for him out of his very self an everlasting structure. Blessed art thou, Lord, creator of men. Such blessing echoes the original environment of man. All should be offered to the one who gave us all that is good. Our first parents were gifted with a world replete with promise, which called for their best. But there was one peril, a lying serpent. The fall. The root of Asidia is found in the fallen self, which is our lot in a broken and groaning world. We dimly perceive the good and consider what it may require of us. We are daunted and pursue another way, an easier way, and too many souls join us in our fool's errand. The psychology and theology of the human fallen to sin is multifaceted, and all of it deserves study. One element of this original transgression throws light on the origin of Asidia. Consider the words of the serpent to the first woman. Genesis 3, 1-5 Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent, a mere creature, challenged the Creator's authority, insinuated that God was holding some good, withholding some good, and tempted the woman to be like God by doing the one act that God had forbidden, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This serpentine overture promised a shortcut to blessing. By simply eating the forbidden fruit, you will be like God. Nothing else is required. No dominion over creation, no cultivation of a garden, no life in a male-female covenant. Ardor in a sinless and God-blessed world was too arduous, claimed the serpent. One act will bestow everything needed and immediately. Asidia was advocated to open the door to a one-stop, obedience-optional blessing machine. God's relationship to the first couple before the fall is sometimes referred to as the covenant of works, particularly by Reformed theologians. At minimum, this divine human arrangement was initiated by the grace of God in giving man and woman a good world and giving them their very being. God then stipulated the terms of the covenant, obey and live, or disobey and die. 
good works would not merit salvation, but disobedience would break the original concord with God. Viewed from this angle, sin resulted from indolence in obeying God. Sin issued from the refusal to continue to do God's work in God's way. Sedia toward God brought about the alienation from God. Redemption. The fall into sin did not mean the end of life since God graciously promised a redeemer. Genesis 3. Continued to reveal himself in creation. Psalm 19. 1 through 6, Romans 1, 18 through 21, formed a people from Abraham, sent his prophets, and wonder of wonders, invaded this broken planet in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John 1, 1 through 18. Christ's life, death, and resurrection manifested the grace and truth of God, such that those who confess Jesus as Lord find forgiveness, justification, and new and unending life. The Lord Jesus Christ was always about his Father's business, Luke 2.42, and came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. His mission knew no respite, a respite. The Cedia did not invade. Christ was chock full with the Holy Spirit for ministry. Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We're John 3.34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The cross bridges the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings for all who believe. Christ inaugurates a new covenant, a new kingdom, and a new era in which new creations are urged and empowered to glorify God and serve people in all things. Matthew 6.33 and Matthew 22.37-40 Dedicated disciples of Jesus will labor to uproot Asidia, bring their sins to Christ, 1 John 1.7-10, and grow in the knowledge of and obedience to God as they submit to the Spirit of Truth, John fourteen twenty three. An all-powerful God can empower vessels of clay to do good works far beyond what may be imagined. But this cannot be done on the cheap. Jesus promised that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be filled. Matthew 5. Paul the Apostle experienced and preferred the work on God in him over the work of the fallen nature when he wrote about Christ. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul's metaphors for young Pastor Timothy speak to this non-negligible pursuit. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. 
the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. And consider those metaphors, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Each metaphor, the soldier's obedience, the athlete's quest for victory, the diligent farmer's reward, commends ardor and condemns acedia. Consummation For the redeemed, the final state of a judged and redeemed world will be free from tears and the curse. Righteousness will dwell unhindered by acedia or by any other sin. There will be no impediment to human flourishing or to the knowledge and experience of God. Revelation 21, 1-4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The desires of those so destined will accord with virtue and delight in the love of God and neighbor, since they will be perfected and incorruptible. As the Westminster Confession of Faith put it, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God, who gave them, the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the redemption of their bodies. The last day, such are found alive, such as are found alive, shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his Spirit unto honor, and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Outside of this restored world are those who let Asidia master them. Outside are those who did not repent and confess Jesus as Lord. Outside are those who did not seek the kingdom of God, but let their desire for truth flag and fail and fester. Outside are those who turn to evil rather than rejoicing in the good. See Revelation 22, verse 15. Therefore, their desires will turn more in on themselves and be a testimony to their spiritual self-centeredness. James warns, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James 4.17 A horrible outcome often begins with small acts of moral laziness. Acedia may be underfoot, but it is usually undercover at least until the end. Assault on Acedia, a few comments. Before Acedia is banished in the new heavens and the new earth, mortals must keep watch against it and displace it by reasonable passions. 
Acedia corrodes both personal conduct and social conscience. Those anesthetized by acedia do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said, nor do they seek the welfare of the city to which they are exiled. Jeremiah 29.7 They are comfortable, although not fulfilled. The prophet Amos confronted such people. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Amos 6.1 Pursuing virtue and shunning vice is not for cowards who seek peace with themselves at any price. Viktor Frankl emphasized that life-giving meaning requires a tension between what is and what ought to be. Mere stasis is death. Where Soviet dissident and Christian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, In 1973, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Holy Scripture makes this clear. After God accepted Abel's offering to him, and rejecting the offering of his brother Cain, the Lord said to the irate Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Murderous Cain did not master this lurking sin, but was mastered by it. Nevertheless, Scripture often speaks of resisting or battling the sin that so easily entangles us. Hebrews 12.1 Since there is no truce between good and evil, the assault on Asidia is fortified by several practices which should become habits of the Christian heart. Asidia shrinks before the presence of a holy God, a God who will neither compromise with sin nor put up with vice. Here I am, send me, cried Isaiah after beholding the Lord in his majesty. Isaiah 6.8 Therefore, we are wise. Therefore, we should make wise use of the means of grace through the church and individually. I will mention only one the careful and consistent reading and meditating on Scripture. The Bible is God's inspired word to human beings, which instructs us on how to think and live. It does not mince, word, mince words, it gets nothing wrong. It often exposes our acedia, excuses, and wrongdoing. As Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This means that Christians, in order to avoid acedia and erase passion for the will of God and the extension of God's kingdom, should read all of the Bible over and over again, read it in a studious way, Study Bibles can be very helpful to that end, perhaps theological education. Christians need to memorize Scripture, have it live in their hearts, 
They also need to meditate on it, go over it again and again, and ponder its steps. And Christians also need to hear the Bible taught and preached by competent communicators in the church and elsewhere. A regular exposure to God's living and active Holy Word will do much to uproot acedia and put a holy passion for truth and goodness into your bones. It's been Doug Rothheis with Truth Tribe. If you'd like to know more about my ministry or what I can offer you, please go to douglasgrothuis.com. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hello, my name's Rachel Carmen, and I want to invite you to come over and listen to my podcast. It's called Real Refreshment. For years and years as a young mother, I chased after the wind, thinking that the world could offer me the refreshment I longed for. But it was only when I discovered it in the person of Jesus Christ that I really found refreshment. Come on over and join me as we dig into Bible study. I'll see you there.